0: In case of a nuclear attack, the protection of records is essential. If this country is to carry on its economy... To Western Fringe, a podcast about Colorado's weird history. I'm your host, Heidi Beadle, and today I am at 1776 Mesa Avenue in Colorado Springs. This house is probably the closest thing Colorado Springs has to a literary landmark. It was originally built in 1950 by science fiction author Robert A. Heinlein, and he and his wife, Virginia, lived there until the mid-60s. That period is when Heinlein wrote some of his most famous works, like Stranger in a Strange Land and Starship Troopers. I have kind of a weird relationship with Heinlein, I just want to get that out there from the get-go. My parents were typical boomers, my dad was a Vietnam vet, and my mom was, like, this hippie who grew up in Southern California and a lot of my cultural influences growing up were stuff from the sixties. You know, my parents were always listening to Paul Simon and Creedence Clearwater revival, Janis Joplin, that sort of thing. Um, you know, on TV, I would watch like, you know, uh, Gilligan's Island and, you know, Beverly Hillbillies and all these like kind of weird vintage shows. Um, you know, and, and, believe it or not, I was kind of a weird kid. Um, I got really into books kind of early on. And so, you know, my mom kind of steered my reading with like a lot of stuff from that period, you know, so like Beverly Cleary. And then, you know, as I got older, um, you know, she, she put me onto some of the, the pulp science fiction stuff from the 60s. And, um, you know, obviously Heinlein was very prolific during that era. And um, he actually wrote like a surprising number of young adult books. Um, And so basically from like sixth grade through high school, I was kind of consuming a steady diet of Heinlein. Um, today, Heinlein is panned or at least like heavily critiqued for the right wing politics and themes in many of his books. Um, Starship Troopers is probably the most extreme example, but all of his writings have little bits and pieces of his libertarian worldview. And it's weird kind of thinking about like the literature and and media and stuff that you consume as a kid or a teenager, because most people consume their media pretty uncritically, especially when you're in like sixth grade, you know, high school, that sort of thing. Um, And growing up in rural conservative Virginia, I didn't think of Heinlein's work as particularly right-wing. His novels had interesting sexual politics and these critiques of, like, organized religion and society that really seemed at odds with, you know, the Bush-era right-wing politics, right? Like, when I I thought of right-wing politics, I definitely didn't think Robert Heinlein. Um, And, you know, one of the books that kind of cemented Heinlein's place in my heart was I Will Fear No Evil, which is basically a novel about a trans person. um, And it was one of the first Pieces of fiction that I had read that was like explicitly about that, you know, um, aside from like gender swap episodes on cartoons or whatever, you know, this was like an actual novel um, written by Robert Heinlein, who my parents like, even though they didn't know that book, they knew like what he was about. So they just figured it was like some space adventure story and not like a story about a dude whose brain gets transplanted into the body of a woman and he has to like deal with society from that perspective, you know, um, it was much safer to read kind of like Robert Heinlein at home and at school than it was to read like Dennis Cooper, you know. And maybe it was because of his pulp status, you know, that I never really bothered to look into who Heinlein was biographically speaking, right? You get to college and you you look at the life and the influence of all these authors. Um, but, you know, somebody like Robert Heinlein who wrote genre fiction, um, you never really think that it's like that... Important, you know, um, but when you look into Robert Heinlein's life, you he find some pretty interesting stuff. Um, particularly his connections to L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons and the Esalen Institute. Um, there's some pretty pretty sus stuff going on with Robert Heinlein that I had absolutely no idea about, and we're going to take a look at all of those things today. Welcome to Western Fringe, Episode 13, The Man Who Sold the Moon. Research comes from the book Robert A. Heinlein in Dialogue with His Century, Volume 1, Learning Curve, 1907 to 1948, by William H. Patterson. It is an authorized biography, so, you know, they like approved everything that went into it. Um, some critics have even called it like a hagiography, like it obviously is presenting Heinlein in this kind of favorable light and, and really leaning on the fact that he's this like cultural icon and literary figure. Um, but it is very well sourced and uses a lot of letters and kind of source documents and um, presents a lot of things um, that you might not find in other places. So um, I'm using this as sort of like the, the anchor text for today's episode. Robert Anson Heinlein was born July 7th, a cancer, in 1907, in Butler, Missouri. He was from a big family, one of seven Heinlein children. The Heinleins were religious in the way that many Midwestern families are, but they were part of, like, a not common religious sect, I guess. Um, You know, they were part of the Methodist Episcopal Church, and the church the Heinlands were a part of was one of the abolitionist churches in Missouri, um, which during the Civil War had kind of been a slave state due to the Missouri Compromise. Um, And But Heinlein grew up in this Methodist Episcopal um, kind of tradition, which was abolitionist and anti-racist. And, you know, he grew up in as much of a, like, woke environment as you could find in Missouri in the 1900s. Um, Heinlein's family, politically, they were Democrats, um, and Democratic politics in Kansas City were controlled by the Pendergasts, who I mentioned in the last episode about the Colorado Mafia. They kind of ran um, not just Democratic politics, but some organized crime stuff in Kansas City. Um, But anyway, so as a child, um, Heinlein had some kind of weird experiences. According to Patterson, Bobby was already an unusual sort of boy. His intelligence was obvious, and he was resourceful as well, but he hid the most startling evidence of his personal uniqueness. He was having what we would now call mystical experiences, and what is more unusual, understanding what they meant. Most of these mystical experiences were past-life recollections that stopped in adolescence, a common enough pattern recorded in 20 cases suggestive of reincarnation. But he did not forget them. Like the train incident in Swope Park, they colored his internal life with the conviction of personal immortality. This conviction did not take the form of a belief in reincarnation so much as something that threads through his works and looks superficially but not strictly correctly, like a kind of solipsism. I have had a dirty suspicion around me are myself at different points in world in the world's record grooves. Later, he found this idea articulated in the essays very widely read then, of Ralph Waldo Emerson as the Oversoul. Even later, he encountered it again, in Hindu sacred writings, Tat Tvam Asi translated variously as Thou Art That, Thou Art Brahma, or Thou Art God. But as a small child, his experience was direct and personal. So Heinlein, you know, as a small child, has these experiences of past life memories, um, which is an interesting phenomenon that, like, Leslie Keen has kind of explo- explored um, in some of her works. And there are, like, a number of uh, cases of kind of kids who have these past life memories. And um, it's really a fascinating thing. And, um, you know, Heinlein, I guess, was was one of those kids. Um, By 1916, at the age of nine, um, Heinlein... Entered the workforce, you know, he started doing odd jobs and, um, you know, trying to help bring in money for his large and poor family. Um, Heinlein was also kind of a voracious reader in his youth, um, and he was really into um, L. Frank Baum's Oz books, which are heavy on Rosicrucian themes. Um, and later, he got into like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Mark Twain. And Heinlein actually first came to Colorado in 1923. He did manage to take one trip to Colorado to spend the entire month of July 1923 hiking with his friend Stanley Moyes. The first time, at age 16, he had been away from home for any substantial length of time. The boys took the Colorado Flyer from Kansas City arriving in Colorado Springs on the 1st of July. That day, Robert saw the Garden of the Gods, On July 2nd, he went to Manitou Springs and visited the Cave of the Winds, Ute Canyon Pass, which he spelled in his itinerary, Y-U-T-E Canyon, and Green Mountain Falls. Coming from flat country, he was awed by the Rockies. Pike's Peak and Long's Peak were the greatest emotional experience in my life up to that time." The Heinleins were a military family. Heinlein's older brother, Lawrence, served at the end of World War I. His other older brother, Rex, was appointed to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. Heinlein himself joined the National Guard, and in 1925, he also received an appointment to the Naval Academy. While at the academy, Heinlein got into some weird mystical stuff with his classmates as well, so this kind of weird mysticism is sort of a recurring theme. Barrett Lanning, who later gave up his middle name and went by Cal, quickly became one of Heinlein's best friends. In various bull sessions, Heinlein had shared with him his suspicion that there was a big secret of some kind that the adults were hiding from them. Things just couldn't be as messy as real life or as irrational as the explanations he was handed. The two of them and classmate Gus Gray thought it would be a fine idea to pass to each other any clue they discovered to the big secret. They called this the quest. All sorts of things went into the quest anything that might bear on the real reality. In their last semester at the Academy, Lanning gave Heinlein a book that was to have a major shaping influence on his life, Jürgen, A Comedy of Justice by James Branch Cabell. While Heinlein's reading of Jürgen and then the rest of Cabell, he brought C.H. Hinton's a new era of thought to Lanning. H.G. Wells had mentioned Hinton in his new book that year, The Way of the World, the way the world is going. The main part of Hinton's book was about visualizing geometric forms in higher dimensions, but it had some mystical tinges to it too. This visualization trick was supposed to be the key to esoteric powers of mind and so forth just the sort of thing Lanning was interested in. Wells had also mentioned J.W. Dunn, another philosopher of time and multiple dimensions. Dunn had published in 1927 An Experiment with Time, a book that was provoking a lot of discussion among physicists about the nature of time. These subjects were fodder for the quest. In Turnabout, Lanning then taught Heinlein how to hypnotize people, a useful and entertaining trick for impressing dates. Heinlein did feel personally connected to Lanning, who had never snubbed him, and this was a tie to his origins he could feel comfortable with. Lanning's active interest in mystical matters probably allowed Heinlein to reconnect with his own mystical experiences as a child, experiences that had been covered up with getting and spending and boning grease that year. So Heinlein has a lot of these, like, weird mystical connections like as a child and then at the academy and getting into this idea of like real reality um really interesting stuff right um Heinlein was also almost a Rhodes scholar which is kind of a suspicious thing, I guess. Um, he would have been one of the first Rhodes Scholars from the Naval Academy, um, but he spontaneously got married after graduation, uh, which put him out of consideration as Rhodes Scholars at the time were not allowed to be married. Um, the marriage was short and unhappy, and Heinlein was at sea for most of it. His first naval assignment was to the USS Lexington, an aircraft carrier based out of San Pedro, California. While in the Navy, Heinlein uh, like experimented with telepathy with his academy buddies, Cal Lanning and Gus Gray, and he must have started their experiments with telepathy, setting up blind trials according to the methods suggested in Upton Sinclair's new in 1930 book, Mental Radio, a book Heinlein specifically mentions in one of his early stories. Heinlein knew Sinclair as a socialist editorialist in the journal Appeal to Reason, which Heinlein had read as a boy. Sinclair was a famous muckraker who had caused a national scandal in 1906 and 1907 by describing in the jungle labor practices in the Chicago meatpacking industry, and was world famous because of that book. Mental Radio was a straightforward report of his wife's experiments with telepathy, picking up where Mark Twain had left off in his mental telegraphy essays with a series of case studies transmissions of words, messages, and even images from near and far, and a first-pass at statistical analysis of the results. It looked like a thoughtful attempt to put a very firm statistical grounding under the type of anecdotal evidence Twain had collected. It stood to become the basis for a scientific investigation of telepathy. More important, Mary Craig Sinclair gave directions for developing telepathic talents. In the introduction to the book, Sinclair had suggested that telepathic ability could be cultivated deliberately as any other object of study. The essential in this training is an art of mental concentration and auto-suggestion, which can be learned. Heinlein was very interested in the idea that special abilities could be learned by mental exercises. And now it appeared that the hypnosis Cal Lanning was playing around with might lead in that direction too. Heinlein, Gus Gray, and Cal Lanning would write to one another, setting times for trials. And then at the appointed day and hour, they would try to transmit and receive telepathic images and messages. They could exchange the results by mail too, or in person on the infrequent occasions when they were in the same port. Pretty wild, huh? In 1932, Heinlein remarried to a woman named Leslyn MacDonald. Soon after, after suffering severe motion sickness aboard his new ship, the USS Roper, a smaller, Bouncier compared to the Lexington destroyer, Heinlein was diagnosed with tuberculosis. He was given three months of medical leave and treated at a sanatorium in Arcadia, California. After that, he was sent to Fitzsimmons Army Hospital in Denver for treatment, where he almost died. He was more or less fixed up after seeing a civilian doctor, and while in Denver, he and Leslin, who had kind of a weird open marriage, uh, got into some interesting activities. In addition to the more usual kinds of social life, Robert and Leslin found special social interests in Denver. Undoubtedly, the McConville Elysia Nudist Group in Los Angeles provided him and Leslin with an introduction to John and Alice Garrison, leaders of the local Denver group of nudists, just as they were in the process of organizing a local nudist association, the Colorado Sunshine Club. Couples were preferred at nudist associations to cut down on Publicity attracting hanky panky, Heinland could continue his fresh air regimen through the Col- though the Colorado Sunshine Club was at that time an unlanded group that met in private homes since they did not have a ranch or retreat to go to. In any case, in the dead of winter, naked outdoor activities were out of the question in Denver. How about that? In 1934, uh, the Navy started the process to medically retire Heinlein because of the tuberculosis. He would end up dealing with medical problems all his life. He tried to get into silver mining in Colorado with financing from one of Pendergast's mafia connections, Johnny Lazia. Unfortunately... Lazio was machine gunned to death the day before Heinlein was to sign the paperwork, and after investing his savings in initial inspections of the mine, was effectively broke. Luckily, he had his Navy retirement, which was two-thirds of his pay as a lieutenant junior grade. Heinlein tried to go back to school to get an advanced degree, except that the Naval Academy didn't actually issue degrees until 1933, long after he had graduated. Um, He got involved with Upton Sinclair's 1934 campaign for governor in California, which I think has a lot of parallels to the Bernie movement in 2016. Sinclair was a progressive with his own faction within the Democratic Party called End Poverty in California, or EPIC, which was popular with students and radical types. However, like with Bernie, the radical elements alienated the moderates and internal party infighting ensued. Heinlein was definitely more moderate epic member than um, he was radical, right? He was absolutely against Soviet communism, but was himself very much what we would think of as a Roosevelt Democrat, Heinlein also worked for Epic News, which was like the party's publication, and in 1935 covered labor issues in California, right? So think like Grapes of Wrath. And he also covered like early student-led anti-war or I guess at that time like anti-militarization protests um, for Epic News. Um, at one of those protests, uh, the cops showed up and like clubbed a young woman in the face, um, and Heinlein wrote this editorial about it, and he signed using his military rank, um, which got him in trouble with the Navy, and he was like officially admonished by the Secretary of the Navy in 1935. In June 1935, Heinlein and Leslin purchased a house at 8777 Lookout Mountain in Laurel Canyon. That's a pretty interesting location, although I think Heinlein kind of predates most of the weirdness. But check out David McGowan's book, Strange Scenes Inside the Canyon, which is mostly focused on the 1960s for more on this. Um, But buying a house in Laurel Canyon on Lookout Mountain seems pretty sus, right? Um, Lookout Mountain Air Force Station would be established in 1947 and would house this like massive film studio that would deal with ostensibly films of nuclear tests, but um, they were probably doing like propaganda videos and, and other potentially weird things up there. Who knows, right? Um, and like I said, Heinlein kind of predates all that weird stuff, but it's still kind of a weird coincidence, right, that he was there before all this weird stuff happened. In 1938, Heinlein uh, decided to get into politics himself, and he actually ran for California State Assembly. His platform was included in a 1938 copy of The Epic News. Heinlein to file for Assembly. Robert A. Heinlein, a member of the Beverly Hills Carthay Circle Young Democratic Club, has announced himself as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the State Assembly in the 59th District. If he receives the nomination, he will probably oppose the Republican incumbent, Charles W. Lyon of Beverly Hills, longtime corporation attorney with one of the worst records in the California legislature. Candidate Heinlein gives the following as his platform. Security from Waste. Security from disaster by flood, fire, and earthquakes. Security in our homes and persons from persecution, crime, and police brutality. Security in our old age. Security for our children. Security from lobby control. Security of our natural resources for posterity. Security from war. Security from unjust taxation. Security in our jobs. So, Pretty like Roosevelt Democrat stuff, right? Like very much kind of Bernie style Democrat politics. Um, Heinlein though ended up losing the election. His opponent, Lyon, actually cross-filed. So not only did Lyon run as a Republican, but his name was also on the Democratic primary ballot. And if he beat Heinlein in the Democratic primary Um, he would be able to basically run unopposed. And that's exactly what happened. Um, And ultimately, Heinlein's kind of foray into um, democratic politics in California uh, definitely seems to have shifted his political ideology just a little bit to the right, right? Heinlein realized that the experience of working with Epic had changed his political orientation somewhat. He used to think of himself as a pragmatic socialist, unconcerned with labels, terminology, or fine points of ideology. The Democratic Party had all the stuff it really needed except the driving will, and that the epics could provide. If the epics could clean up their act, they could improve their chances at the next election and the next, and that's what the state committee people were supposed to be working toward after all. He arranged a meeting with Susie Clifton, wife of Robert Clifton. Susie Clifton was an epic Democrat, also on the state central committee. Heinlein had worked with the Cliftons in Ordian Rocky's 1936 campaign. He suggested that the communist problem was becoming a public embarrassment to both Epic and the Democratic Party. A house cleaning was in order, he argued. They needed to conduct a purge and clean up the epic image in order to be more effective. The general election was shaped up well for California, but not encouraging for Democrats across the country. There is a rule of thumb, he argued to Clifton, that communists in America flourish where there are real problems that need to be dealt with. Epic is trying to address certain real problems, and it's going to attract communists, and that's all there is to it. Unfortunately, we are more prone to ignore the six spots thus disclosed and content ourselves with calling out more cops. He had direct testimony on this point, and he was not prepared to budge. A very dear friend, now dead, had actually been present and voted at the notorious meeting in the 20s in which the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the USA ordered a policy under which clandestine members were to infiltrate the clergy, the teachers, and the newspaper men. And besides that, I had had my nose rubbed in the fact that clandestine Communist Party members had in 1938 infiltrated the organization of the California Democratic Party top to bottom and controlled many key positions. So Hyland was basically like upset that the communists were kind of costing the Democrats elections or or that was his perception at the time, which again seems pretty just giving me 2016 flashbacks, you know? Um, With Heinlein's political hopes dashed, uh, he needed to get like a real job. Uh, A house ad in the pulp science fiction magazine Thrilling Wonder Stories gave him the idea to try writing. His first novel, For Us the Living, was named after after a line from Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It was about a guy who dies in the present but wakes up in a utopian future. And again, this is kind of like Heinlein's libertarian principles, right? So he like, how did they get to this utopian future? And and what is their society based on? And all of these things um, were all kind of embedded with these like weird libertarian bits and pieces. Heinlein sold his first short story, Lifeline, in 1939, and the rest, as they say, is history. With his new career as a science fiction writer, Heinlein uh, got really into kind of networking and and meeting other people and he joined the Los Angeles Science Fiction League in 1939 and there he started working with other writers in the scene. Even better, There was a letter of comment praising the story as one of the best published in 1939 from Isaac Asimov. Asimov's name was familiar because he wrote to the science fiction magazines frequently, but also because he had had a few stories published in Amazing earlier in the year, about the time Heinlein had started writing. In fact, Asimov was a colleague as well as a fan. A few weeks later, Heinlein received a personal letter from Asimov. He was only 19 years old, a chemistry student, and fiercely bright and amusing as well. He told Heinlein that he thought Jehovah got all the good press and Satan need to hire a good press agent. That was an idea that could be developed into a story one day. Not the first time we're going to mention kind of weird Satanic stuff here, I guess. But um, later, Heinlein uh, would start his own weekly writer's workshop called the Manana Literary Society. Uh, The casual Saturday at homes Robert and Leslin had started for political purposes gradually changed over the course of 1939 into a writer's group for the local science fiction professionals. Um, It had a bunch of people who kind of showed up and attended, one of which... um, was this guy named William Anthony Parker White, called AP, who was working for United Progressive News as a theater and music critic while trying to get work as a screenwriter. He was also an established mystery writer, and he used the pen name H.H. Holmes, which is weird and creepy because H.H. Holmes was a famous serial killer. Um, if you read the book devil in the white city about the murders at the Chicago's world fair. Um, that's H.H. H. Holmes. So um, Heinlein was just hanging out with these dudes who use serial killers as pen names. Um, but that meeting became um, the Manana Literary Society. Um, and the purpose that they they said was to save civilization by letting writers talk out stories instead of writing about them. And They had um, a lot of interesting participants, um, including L. Ron Hubbard, who they actually met during a trip to New York in 1939. Uh, They met L. Ron Hubbard when they gave a dinner party. They thought he might be the catch of the trip explorer, raconteur, and liberal. Heinlein had been very impressed with Hubbard's realistic treatment of the professional commissioned military officer and the installments of Final Blackout that had appeared before they left for the trip. He is our kind of people in every possible way. Obviously, Heinlein knew Elron Ron Hubbard before he became the figure we know today. Just like with Heinlein's Laurel Canyon home, he seemed to be involved with these sus people and places before they go bad in a big way in the 1960s. Heinlein also continues to move further right politically. A lot of sci-fi writers at the time were, you know, generally communist or socialists, right? Which, I mean, makes sense, right? You're writing about these utopian futures, and for a lot of people, I guess, communism is the way to get there. You know, like Gene Roddenberry and his idea of luxury gay space communism with, like, Star Trek and everything. Um, but Heinlein told writer uh, Robert A.W. Lowndes, My opposition to communism at all, including technocracy, was based almost entirely on matters of civil liberty. It was not based on opposition to socialism per se. Socialism can be good or bad depending on how it is run. I never could stomach the indifference of our native commies and fellow travelers to matters of physical freedom, intellectual freedom, and democratic consent. In my own personal evaluation, there is no possible economic benefit of sufficient importance that I would choose it in preference to the freedoms specified in our Bill of Rights and elsewhere in the Constitution and Customs. They aren't perfect, but they are enormously better than the set to be found anywhere else in the world. And I include England, all of Scandinavia, Switzerland, New Zealand, and Australia. I mean, that statement hasn't really... Held up very well, right, in subsequent years as capitalism has kind of ruined everything. Um, But, you know, that was Heinlein's attitude. Um, After Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Heinlein put his writing career on hold and attempted to get back into federal service, um, which was tricky because he had been admonished by that Secretary of the Navy back in 1935. Um, The Navy felt that the editorial he wrote, criticizing the cops for clubbing women, um, ironically meant that he was a communist and should be kept out of the service. Um, And this is just like what we saw in that episode that I did on Camp Hale, where, you know, the, the FBI and all these other agencies were kind of keeping track of people's loyalties. And, you know, they didn't want to let these people into military service who were going to be subversive or disloyal or communists, apparently, Um, which, again, is ironic to apply it to Robert Heinlein, who was definitely not a communist. Um, He was, however, successful in securing wartime work for fellow writers like Isaac Asimov um, as engineers. Denied active duty, Heinlein got a job as a mechanical engineer in Philadelphia and spent the war as a civilian. Part of his job was hiring engineers and he was actually kind of furious that the aeronautical materials lab um, where he worked wouldn't hire women. I almost went through the roof, then took nasty pleasure in chewing out the president of the university in the presence of a large group of people by telling him that his university's medieval policies had deprived the country of trained engineers at a time when the very life of his country depended on such people. So, you know, Heinlein was kind of a feminist, right? His libertarian ideals, at least, um, extended to, you know, equality uh for women during World War II. If uh Heinlein's experiences with California Democratic politics hadn't pushed him enough to the right, uh World War 3 definitely or World War 2, I'm sorry, been watching too much uh too much Ukraine stuff. Um World War II definitely gave him kind of a rightward nudge. Um one of the things that he was working on was um issues around kamikazes, right? So The Navy was taking more combat casualties due to kamikazes than were the Army and the Marines ashore. The conventional response, improved detection and defense, wasn't working well enough. Heinlein was asked by OPNAV-23 to come up with some unconventional responses. Even though the kamikaze program was not, by itself, a great impediment to the war in the Pacific, it was one more symptom of a problem that was becoming central, so far as Heinlein was concerned. Germany and Japan now had to be obliterated as cultures. This is not revenge, he explained. This is a pragmatic necessity. This murderous damn foolishness has got to stop. Early in the fall of 1944, Heinlein started a science fiction think tank among his colleagues scattered around the Atlantic Northeast. Campbell and his assistant L. Jerome Stanton from New York and Stanton's roommate, Theodore Sturgeon, George O. Smith, and L. Ron Hubbard came with that group, too, by train every weekend to the Heinlein's apartments. And they talked about how to combat the kamikaze issue and stuff like that. Um, And mostly, though, Heinlein was kind of establishing this, like, friendship with L. Ron Hubbard, um, this gave the Heinleins a chance to become better acquainted with Elron Hubbard, and they found him a fascinating person. He was in Princeton in September 1944, and Campbell roped him in for the think tank. Both the Heinleins found him very compatible, though Sprague de Camp and Jack Williamson were both suspicious of him rightly so. Heinlein was fascinated by Hubbard's larger-than-life quality and by the number of wounds he had already taken in his country service. He was a prime talker, the kind of conversationalist who could draw people out. He was also good story material. One evening at the Heinlein's apartment, Robert remarked on a persistent dust devil hanging around the odd cornices of the building, and Hubbard glanced over and said, "'Oh, that's just Kitten,' and went back to his conversation with someone else." Robert excused himself and immediately made him note of the remark. Three years later it would become a short story, Our Fair City. In nineteen forty five, Heinlein told Hubbard to hit up a friend of his in California. When L. Ron Hubbard got orders in January 1945 to go to San Francisco, he celebrated by bringing Heinlein a whole box of his favorite candy bars. In sugar rationed wartime, this was an incredible act of generosity. Hubbard would be in and out of Southern California, and Heinlein suggested that he look up another friend of his, Jack Parsons, a brilliant self-taught rocket engineer and another personality as fascinating as his, in his own way as Hubbard. I think that's a little bit of understatement there, right? Um, Parsons was uh, he he was definitely interesting, right? So here's what the book says about Parsons. Also in April, L. Ron Hubbard, across the continent in Los Angeles, took up Heinlein's suggestion to meet Jack Parsons. Parsons was a rocket engineer working at Caltech, one of the most brilliant and creative of the scientists and engineers there, in fact. Heinlein and Parsons might have met in many ways, as they had science fiction and esoteric philosophy, among other things, as common interests, both fields involving relatively small circles of acquaintances in Los Angeles. But as it happens, they met through rocketry as members of the American Rocket Society. The Sunday Los Angeles Times had run an article about Parsons and his co-workers Frank Molina and Edward Foreman at Galkit, the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at Caltech in November 1939, shortly after Parsons' paper on powder rocket fuels had been published in Astronautics. Parsons was preoccupied with Alistair Crowley's newly founded religion of Thelema and an adept of Crowley's Golden Dawn variety of sex magic. Parsons knew Hubbard's science fiction writing and found him a compatibly offbeat personality. When Parsons inherited a mansion in Pasadena in 1942, he advertised in a local newspaper for boarders to share the house, specifying he was looking for atheists and those of a bohemian disposition. Mundane souls, science fiction fan and resident in the mansion, Alva Rogers recalled in a memoir, were unceremoniously rejected as tenants. Pretty uh, pretty interesting, right? Crowley and occult stuff. Um, so after the war, Heinlein moved back to California and he resumed his friendship with uh, Parsons and Hubbard. When Robert Kornog, a guy who was involved with uh, developing nuclear weapons... Came out to Pasadena, he and the Highlands met for dinner at the home of Jack Parsons. Parsons' Galkit projects had gone over to the newly formed Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he had formed Aerojet to work on rocket-assisted takeoff for the new jets that the Army Air Force was developing. But Aerojet had just been acquired by General Tyre, and Parsons was at loose ends. The timing was perfect to rope him into the moon rocket project. Parsons' personal life was a little messy. During the war, he had gotten involved with Aleister Crowley's new religion, Thelema, and his occult magic working group, the Ordo Templi Orientis OTO. His first wife, Helen, had run off with the head of the local chapter of the OTO, but Parsons didn't seem much disturbed by that fact. He had taken up with Helen's 18-year-old sister, Sarah Northrup, a vivacious blonde he would introduce casually as Betty, Nevertheless, Parsons, almost completely self-taught, was an original creative thinker, one of the founding geniuses of American rocketry in the generation after Robert Goddard's pioneering work. Yeah. um, So, not only was Heinlein, like, buddies with Parsons, but Parsons was, like, super involved in the occult things and um, he had, like, I guess, weird relationships with women, um, to say it the least. Um, and, you know, Hubbard and Heinlein also kind of had um, an interesting relationship. Um, you know, the Heinleins particularly look forward to seeing Elron Ron Hubbard and his wife, Polly. Um, Leslyn, Heinlein's wife, Robert said, had an affair with Hubbard. This is the most likely time for it to have taken place. Robert's regard for Hubbard and Hubbard's for him, was not affected in the least. So, you know, Robert Heinlein and L. Ron Hubbard had some, like, wife swap things going on. Um, You know, and around this time when Heinlein moved back to California after the war, uh, Leslin his wife began to have like a really bad time. Um, not just, you know, cause she slept with L Ron Hubbard. Um, but from what Patterson writes, um, you can kind of read into it that Leslyn had issues with eating disorders and then later very seriously with alcoholism. Um, and Leslin was also like weirdly into mystical stuff. Um, and kind of occult things. um, Leslin was just as liberal and modern as Robert, in some ways even more so. She even practiced witchcraft, white witchcraft, in the old pagan tradition of Northern Europe, though she didn't, so far as Robert know, belong to an actual coven. The essence of the craft is secrecy, and that was about all Heinlein knew about the subject. Heinlein himself had never any strong calling in that direction, and a strong calling is utterly necessary for practical magic working." His own reading had run to hermetic symbol, symbolical philosophy, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, interesting intellectually, but it didn't do anything for him except to provide interesting story materials. Taking up pagan richery might have been as much a rejection of her mother's theosophy as of Christianity. You are tied to anything you feel strongly enough about to have to object." Um, and also, um, so Leslyn's health was getting bad. Um, although Leslyn's health had begun to improve, she was still suffering from exhaustion. Her doctor ordered her confined to bed. First, she had placed wards around the house to protect against ghosts, the Cutners had noticed in 1942, especially one against a thing that keeps trying to come up the basement steps. To keep her occupied once her magical work was done, Heinlein asked her to take over the correspondence. She could answer most of the letters longhand from her bed. So not only were the Heinleins into like weird mysticism and tied to like occult practitioner Jack Parsons and future Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard, um, they uh, also had... Problems with ghosts. Um, Leslin, of course, wasn't the only one who was having problems at this time. Hubbard was not doing too well either. He was jumpy, nervous, and unstable. Everyone had noticed it. He had a tendency to fly off on obsessions that were not always very firmly grounded. He had become a high-maintenance friend, and it took hours of working with him to keep on an even keel—a situational problem, Heinlein was sure, and one he would recover from in time. The war had been hard on a lot of people, though comparisons with blinded and disabled veterans of the fighting always made him feel small. Hubbard was in the wounded veteran category and deserved all the patience Heinlein could muster, right? So even though Hubbard was kind of going crazy and, and dealing with like PTSD, um, you know, Heinlein was trying to support him and he felt this obligation to, you know, support the wounded veterans, um, which is, you know, fairly noble, I would say, right? And not out of character for Heinlein at all. Um, But of course, while Hubbard was dealing with his PTSD, um, Parsons was getting him more and more involved in this Crowley-esque magic stuff. In December 1945, Heinlein also struck a deal with Hubbard about For Us the Living, Um, which had been packed away all during the war years, Hubbard would rewrite it to turn it into a saleable novel and take top billing. He would have a free hand so long as he didn't denature the political and social evaluations in the book, and they would split the proceeds 50-50. Almost immediately after they signed the contract, however, Hubbard gave up his space at Shea Heinlein and moved in with Jack Parsons. Nothing was ever done on For Us the Living. Jack Parsons rented out rooms in the large house in Pasadena he had inherited, seeking odd and eccentric characters of all kinds. This suited Hubbard's needs, and he moved in. Parsons had assumed leadership of the Los Angeles chapter of Aleister Crowley's OTO, and he gave weekly presentations of the Gnostic Mass in the attic of his house. The Gnostic Mass was a theatrical piece rather than a true religious rite, suitable for introducing newcomers to the basic concept of Crowley's religion of Thelema. Heinlein himself had attended a performance, saving the program, and a paper-bound copy of Crowley's Book of the Law for future reference. Parsons found Hubbard the most Thelemic person I had ever met— Hubbard immediately became comfortable in Parsons' eccentric menage and soon started an affair with Parsons' live-in lover and magical assistant, Sarah Betty Northrup. Although testimony on the subject is divided, it appears that Parsons had little objection to make when Hubbard took over Betty's affections. Betty's affections were habitually strewn around pretty indiscriminately, and not just as a matter of adolescent friendliness, a fact Robert did not pick up on immediately, but Leslyn did. Instead, Parsons immediately threw himself into a magical project to call down an elemental to take her place. And that would be, uh, you know, Parsons Babylon Working, um, which apparently, you know, created this elemental woman who would give birth to the Antichrist. If if I am remembering this story correctly, um, Subliminal Jihad's Kenneth Anger episode, I think, describes all of this stuff in much more detail. Um, but Parsons was into some really weird shit. And L. Ron Hubbard was as well. And Heinlein was kind of... In the orbit of all that, in kind of a weird way, um, and you know the friendship between uh, Parsons and Hubbard um, didn't end very well, unfortunately, right imagine imagine that. Um, Something odd was going on with L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons. Late in February, Parsons had acquired another sex magic assistant, a gorgeous exotic green-eyed redhead named Marjorie Cameron, whom he referred to as an elemental. So she was, you know, the elemental called down by that Babylon working. She was going by the name of Candy, short for Candida, the yeast that makes Candidiasis yeast infections. Um... Parsons had put up most of the capital to form a business buying and selling yachts, Hubbard and Betty Northrup were heading off to Florida to buy the first vessel which they would sail back to California. It seemed a dubious venture to Heinlein. I don't understand Ron's current activities. I am considerably disturbed by them, not angry, but disturbed on his own account. I don't think he's doing himself any good. As near as I can tell at a distance, he seems to be off on some sort of a big operator tear instead of straightening out and getting reestablished in his profession. Uh, And then later, Jack Parsons' April business deal with Hubbard had fallen through in an embarrassing way. By May 10th, Parsons was suing Hubbard and Betty Northrup to recover some of the boats they had bought. And Heinlein heard that Ron and Betty were heading for New York. In the meantime, the Heinleins had taken in another of Hubbard's discarded ex-girlfriends, Vita Jameson. So, you know... Imagine that, that Hubbard would kind of run a scam on Jack Parsons and just kind of take his money and run. But by 1947, Hubbard would also alienate Heinlein as well. Before leaving Southern California with Sarah... AKA Betty, Elron Hubbard had burned, or at least severely damaged, his bridges with the Heinlands, and Robert felt morally compelled to drop him. Not for the psychological instability and irresponsibility that seemed to have seized him, or for broken dishes, plaster, etc. I can go on forgiving and excusing a wounded veteran indefinitely, Heinlein wrote in a series of notes attached to Hubbard's letter in Heinlein, Heinlein's files, or even the divorce he was trying to obtain from his wife Polly. But Hubbard had caused trouble with Leslin's sister by getting their nephews all worked up about a mysterious China venture with frills that left them all aghast. As a wounded veteran, I am still obligated towards you and will help you if I find you down and out. But I no longer trust you. You may show this letter to anyone you wish. I think a lot of those ribbons on your chest, even if Polly doesn't. Um, And Leslin said... Ron is a very sad case of post-war breakdown. The details are too complex and too personal to be brooded about by letter. So L. Ron Hubbard, you know, rips off Jack Parsons and has all these issues and causes all these problems for the Heinleins and um, eventually kind of loses a lot of his, like, science fiction friends in Southern California. And eventually... Heinlein and Leslin's marriage fall up, fell apart as well, and Heinlein ended up falling in love with a former coworker of his from the Naval Air Experimental Station, Virginia Gerstenfeld, who would remain married to Heinlein, Heinlein for the rest of his life. Um, after his divorce from Leslin, uh, Heinlein was in a bad situation for a while, and it like the divorce took forever to get through. So, like, I guess he wasn't actually divorced. Like but he he fell on pretty hard times um and was trying to get his uh writing situation back and um he eventually does kind of by like the end of 1947 he starts selling stories again um and all of his personal things are kind of getting taken care of. Um, Patterson points out that one of the first purchases Heinlein made um, after this kind of period of financial instability was Alfred Kinsey's book, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. Kinsey is also one of those, like, really sus people um, in kind of the same way that Parsons and Hubbard are. Uh, Kinsey was also weirdly into Crowley stuff. And a lot of Kinsey's research was based on the Journal of a Pedophile. So it's just creepy, weird people around Robert Heimlin, right? Um, and again, Subliminal Jihad's episode about Kenneth Anger breaks down a bunch of the Hubbard, Parsons, Kinsey stuff um, if you really want to go deep on all of that. Um, things were Getting better for Heinlein, though, right? By 1948, uh, Howard Hughes, also kind of a sus figure, um, was interested in making a film out of Heinlein's novel, Ship Galileo. That would eventually become the 1950 film Destination Moon, uh, but as far as I know, Hughes had nothing to do with it. Despite his success, um, his ex-wife Leslyn was making life in California super difficult. So in 1948, Heinlein... Um, moved to Colorado Springs, which he said was one of his favorite places in the entire country. Say what you want about Robert Heinlein, he had good taste in municipalities. Um, Eventually, Jenny came out to Colorado Springs to live with him, and he finally was able to get an official divorce from Leslin. Um, And then in 1950, Heinlein began construction on the house on Mesa Avenue. Since it was a new development at the time, he got to pick the number. 1776. Some real cheesy Patriot shit, huh? Heinlein basically designed the house, and it was as modern and futurist as he could make it. The house was featured in the Colorado Springs Gazette and in a 1952 issue of Popular Mechanics. In what kind of house will the captain of a spaceship live during his stopovers on Earth? It's too early to say yet, though probably it will contain some of the features of a residence just built by Robert A. Heinlein in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Heinlein is the author of the movie Destination Moon and creator of the Tom Corbett Space Cadet Program on television. As a writer of science fiction, his books The Green Hills of Earth, The Puppet Masters, and others are on current book lists. The engineering training that gives him a solid background for writing— about the mechanics of space travel also has helped him in designing a house that's called extreme today, but may become conventional before the 20th century has run its course. Heinlein's house runs itself with a minimum of maintenance and housework. It has an indoor climate that's unrelated to varying outdoor temperatures. Within reason, it is fireproof, termite proof, and earthquake proof. The house is expensive compared to minimum standards, and yet the owner saved money when he moved in. What Mr. and Mrs. Heinlein wanted was a comfortable, pleasing residence that would just about take care of itself. The result is a single-story, flat-roofed house containing entry hall, combination living-dining room, kitchen, bedroom, and nursery with a sliding wall between, study, two baths, and attached garage with space for a home workshop. It's a small house, 1100... er, 1,150 square feet of floor space in the living area, designed for two adults and a child, yet, by means of built-in furniture, it could sleep seven without crowding. Built-ins are a major feature. Aside from a few chairs, a piano, and a dining room table that commutes on wheels, there is no movable furniture in the house. The built-in bed with storage drawers beneath it, the built-in divans. (laughs) that can be converted to extra beds and all the other furniture are built right down to the floors, Heinlein says. There is nothing to clean under. There are no rugs or any need for them. All floors are surfaced with cork tile that provides a warm, comfortable, and clean footing. Nor are there any floor lamps or table lamps. The illumination is built into the house. General lighting for the living room comes from cold cathode tubes concealed behind a box molding. These illuminate the ceiling. Adjustable wall spotlights are located at All work and relaxation areas in the house. All electric convenience outlets are at comfortable hip height. I'm through stooping over to the baseboard. Whenever I want to plug in an appliance. With no rugs, or movable lamps, or furniture, the whole house can be given a general cleaning in about an hour. The house is built of steel-reinforced concrete blocks and masonry, and is painted dark green on the exterior, offset by broad panels of gleaming aluminum roof trim. Interiors of the concrete block walls are exposed and painted light green. Interior partitions are of bleached mahogany backed with rock wool. The same wood is used for all cabinetry and built-in features. All interior doors are sliding doors. Walls of the study and the water heater compartment are soundproofed. The roof is insulated. A flat roof is no disadvantage in snow country, Heinlein finds, if it is properly reinforced against heavy loads. The extra strength permits it to be decked over and used as a porch for sunbathing. The roof surface consists of several layers of hot mopped roofing paper topped by a layer of gravel and sprayed with aluminum paint to reflect solar heat. The roof projects far enough beyond the south side of the house to shade the south windows from the summer sun, yet it admits light to the windows in winter when the sun is lower in the sky. Two small skylights that work night and day help illuminate the study and a small center hall. Each skylight contains a pair of fluorescent tubes that provide indirect lighting in the evening for the area below. Top and bottom of each skylight are translucent glass with the bottom frame hinged for access to the lighting tubes. The skylight interiors are painted aluminum for greater efficiency and contain mirror panels slanted to reflect the sunlight below even when the sun is not at its zenith. Most houses are too hot or too cold at times or too drafty or dusty. Heinlein gets just the indoor climate he wants by an ingenious arrangement of air conditioning and ducts. First of all, the house is sealed. None of the windows can be opened. They are double glazed, in fact, with quarter inch airspace between the panes. The air conditioning unit off the kitchen consists of a gas-fired furnace and electric blower equipped with dust filter, humidifier, and glycolator air purifier. Temperature is controlled by a thermostat in the living room. The blower operates at all times. The furnace draws 20% of its air from outside the house, creating a positive pressure indoors that is exhausted through concealed vents in the kitchen and each bath. Heinlein estimates that the blower uses no more power in constant operation than it would use in intermittent use. He plans to add an electrostatic precipitator to to the system to augment the present dust filter. Air from the conditioner is ducted at floor height along the exterior walls of the house to the room outlet grills. This perimeter ducting creates a band of warmth that ensures comfortable floors even in freezing weather in one bath the warm air is ducted under the bathtub in the other the warm air supply flows under the floor of the shower thus the tub and shower floor are pleasantly warm at all times the shower incidentally has an extra shower head on the wall opposite the standard fixture it's operated by an overhead valve and a bather may be sprayed from two sides if he desires a shampoo dispenser is attached to the shower wall just below the soap dish The built-in furniture includes a 7 by 6 foot bed with drawers beneath, a storage wall type wardrobe, closet containing a set of drawers, a combination work table and typewriter desk for Heinlein in his study, and its counterpart, an office in a corner of the kitchen for his wife. Here she has a desk with drawers, bookshelves, and a flat top that folds back to reveal a typewriter and paper compartments. In a compact line around the kitchen walls are the stove, sink, and electric dishwasher combination, automatic clothes washer, dryer, and refrigerator. Storage walls are used in a place of closets for canned goods and other supplies such a storage wall contains sets of shallow shelves recessed into the wall The cans stand in single rows, take up no space, and every item is in sight for instant selection. A time-consuming domestic chore is that carrying of dishes to the dining table before a meal and then carrying them back to the kitchen after a meal is finished. In the Heinlein house, the dining table rolls right into the kitchen where all silver, china, and food dishes are laid out. Then the table is pushed through the wall into the dining area. It goes back into the kitchen again after a meal and Mrs. Heinlein transfers the dishes directly to the dishwasher the table travels through an opening in the wall and normally stands with one end in the dining area and the other end in the kitchen a sliding partition above the tabletop may be raised to provide clearance for the articles on the table and a door below may be swung out of the way when the entire table is to be moved into the dining area other features of the house include a radio and phonograph controlled center in the hall wired to speakers in each room the speakers may be controlled and at convenient locations. There is an indoor garden area in the living room with soil going right down to natural earth. The perimeter heating system keeps the soil warm all through the winter, so delicate plants can be transferred to the outdoor garden for the cold season. Translucent blocks are used to outline the front entrance door. One block at eye level is of clear glass and has a mirror attached diagonally to its exterior so that Mrs. Heinland can inspect a collar before she opens the door a writer is apt to work late into the night and then sleep late the next morning so the blinds of the highland bedroom are of light-proof material their sides are fitted into sheet metal slots as double precaution for keeping out sunlight there are waste baskets in every room but not one of them is visible They are built in with other furniture, and all you see is a spring hinge trap door. Heinlein's house has lots of windows, yet a stranger approaching the house can see only the outer garden and the entrance. Shadow trellises at each side screen the view from the street. The house cost a little more than $20 per square foot. That sounds expensive, but really isn't. For one thing, cost per square foot would have been less had Heinlein built a larger house. He packed all the expensive kitchen and bathroom fixtures into a small residence. For another thing, much of the house was custom built on the site because some materials weren't available in the shapes and sizes he required. Most important of all, he had no furnishings to buy when he moved in. Instead of hiring a moving van, he simply made a couple trips with his automobile to transfer clothes, food, you utensils, linens, and personal belongings to his new house. When these items had been put in place, moving day was over. Today, as you might imagine, the house is wildly different. It has been renovated a few times and doesn't really look anything like it did originally. It is functionally a whole different house. If you type the address into Zillow, you can see it as it is today, And it is worth $1.1 million in Colorado Springs' ridiculous housing market. Heinlein's life, a lot of the stuff he wrote about made a lot more sense. His connection with Hubbard and Parsons who were both into Crowley is definitely something that kind of comes across in his writing One of the things I found interesting about Heinlein was the way he wrote about sex Like, obviously the dude was into open marriages and stuff. Like, that that was not a surprising detail to learn, you know having read, um a lot of his novels. But he was also really into, like, taboo pushing. Um, his novel, To Sail Beyond the Sunset, uh, one of his Lazarus Long books, which featured, like, the classic, like, sexy Boris Vallejo art, opens with a meditation on pubic hair and how people with well-maintained bushes are more into casual sex. It also has a section where it discusses ideas around consensual incest, which... um Uh, yeah just just weird shit Um, but knowing like this weird Crowley connection to Heinlein um, makes a little bit more sense right Um, and that so to sail beyond the sunset is part of Heinlein's Lazarus Long storyline which is essentially about a secret society of people who have managed to extend their lives and then they travel back in time um, and have sex with their ancestors i guess uh, it's it's really weird um but that whole secret society thing is maybe i don't know like a sci-fi version of the masons or whatever i might you know be reaching a little here um but sexual dynamics factor into a lot of his work as well um they mention in moon in the moon is a harsh mistress how all the women on the moon um which I guess was originally a penal colony. Uh, They all have multiple husbands because of the ratio of women to men, right? There are more men prisoners sent to the moon than women. Um, And then, of course, I Will Fear No Evil, which is about an elderly man whose brain and consciousness are transplanted into the body of a young woman. And this person now gets to kind of like experience life as a woman, um today you know there's tons of good literature written by trans people about the trans experience but in 1998 that book was kind of you know a big deal for me Heinlein uh he was better than like a lot of his contemporaries when it came to writing female characters maybe like I haven't I should have probably reread all of these before I did a podcast episode about them. So I might like go back to like reread them and just be like, oh no, these are all kind of awful. So um don't 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 hold me to any of this, right? This is like my recollection. But um but I, I do feel like he was kind of better than a lot of his contemporaries um when it came to writing female characters um you know and maybe that comes back to his libertarian philosophy right his idea of like equality um and he you know he was certainly writing in like the the 40s and 50s and 60s his characters all had this very vintage like almost camp kind of approach to gender you know the the fellas and the dames and and you know, maybe that was one of the things that I liked about his writing, um, you know, is that 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 very like binary expression of gender, you know, because like as as a teen, when I was like, I, I have to be this dude and how how do I be a dude and what kind of like models of masculinity can I look to, um, you know, the, the Heinlein novels had some very like standard cut and dried kind of accessible, you know, stock characters, right? Um, You know, in the way that like trans people, you know, before transition kind of adopt sort of like an NPC persona. Um, I guess I kind of did that a little bit too. Um, But, you know, Heinlein, even still, like he was writing these characters that were kind of very much binary gender characters, He was able to do that in a way that didn't have a lot of the, like, misogyny and exploitative qualities that were common, you know, with a lot of pulp genre fiction from the time. One of the books that Heinlein is probably best known for is Stranger in a Strange Land, which is about a human raised by Martians who comes back to Earth and tries to make sense of, like, human society, it kind of embodied a lot of Heinlein's ideas around kind of like sex and gender. Um, but it was also like critical of organized religion, you know, because it's all a scam. Stranger in a Strange Land had some pretty interesting fans. And I guess most, the most infamous one was uh, Charles Manson. Uh David McGowan actually mentions Heinlein in Program to Kill, uh which, you know, is kind of a hallmark book about, you know, parapolitics and kind of weird conspiracy stuff, and I am slowly working my way through it. But he does mention Heinlein. He says, um Author Robert Heinlein was also reportedly invited to lecture at Esalen. Heinlein, who, like Hubbard, first gained notice pinning pieces for astounding science fiction, is probably best known as the author of the 1961 novel Stranger in a Strange Land. The book provided Manson with a Crowley-inspired script to follow, and it was one of the few books that Charlie allowed his disciples to read. Heinlein was a right-winger with strong authoritarian leanings who, to this day, nevertheless, continues to be promoted by various voices in the progressive community. So I try to find more information on this, um, and I did find mention of Heinlein's appearance at the Esalen Institute in a, in the book Turn Off Your Mind, The Mystic C- 60s and the Dark Side of the Age of Aquarius by Gary Lachman. Um, Robert Heinlein was another sci-fi giant to emerge from the pages of Astounding. His Stranger in a Strange Land, in which a Martian, Valentine Michael Smith, arrives on Earth and inaugurates a free love cult, is rife with themes, ideas, and philosophies that come right out of the pages of Crowley's writing, especially the Book of the Law. Which is the book that, you know, Heinlein got when he attended one of Jack Parson's ceremonies, um, the practice of water sharing that runs throughout the book is taken from Crowley's Gnostic mass. Other occult references abound. The psychic Madame Alexandria Vasant seems a combination of Madame Blavatsky and Annie Bassant, and the catchphrase, thou art God, is like the ancient Hindu, I, I think I mispronounced this earlier, but thou art That Thou Art, a formula of the unity of Atman and Brahma, which Hesse employs in Steppenwolf, um, which was also a book the Manson people were into. Like Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings, Heinlein and Stranger in a Strange Land would achieve cult status by the mid-60s. Also like Tolkien, Heinlein would contribute a word to the language. Tolkien contributed many words, right? But anyway, um, grok, Heinlein's term for an immediate intuitive grasp of a person or situation soon became a counterculture buzzword. At one point, Heinlein was asked to lead a seminar at Big Sur's Esselin Institute, sharing the bill with Alan Watts. Ironically, a book that became a kind of Bible among the leftish Love and Peace Generation was written by an author with right-wing political sympathies and espoused a kind of mystical elitism with a superhuman leader who had no qualms about discorporating individuals who interfered with his plans." Stranger in a Strange Land acquired a darker cachet when it became known that, along with Siddhartha, it was one of the few books that Charles Manson allowed the members of his family to read. In 1970, Heinlein even received a fan letter from one of the family sent from a jail in Independence, California. The link between the book and Manson was so strong that Heinlein turned down an interview with Playboy because Hugh Hefner wanted to ask questions about its influence on the family. That Heinlein was aware of the links between his own libertine philosophy and that of Crowley is clear from a letter he sent to a group of fans who asked permission to use material in Stranger in a Strange Land at their meeting. Heinlein refused, wisely shy of associating his name with any cult, and closes his letter saying, Do what thou wilt. May indeed be the whole of the law, perhaps even a law of nature, but that it was a more complicated idea than most people supposed. Heinlein's book, however, was the inspiration for at least one cult. In the late 60s, a group of students at Westminster College, Missouri, founded a Water Brother fraternity and later established the Church of All Worlds, what they described as a neo-pagan earth religion. So... Yeah, a lot of weird stuff kind of came out of Stranger in a Strange Land. Um, it's worth noting that both Heinlein and Alan Watts, who like he spoke at the Esselin Institute with, were really into general semantics, which, according to Wikipedia, uh, is concerned with how events translate to perceptions, how they are further modified by the names and labels we apply to them, and how we might gain a measure of control over our own responsives cognitive, emotional, and behavioral. It was invented or developed by Alfred Korzybski. Heinlein would uh, regularly go to these seminars offered by Korzybski, um, which brings me kind of to the next sort of piece of, of sus Heinleinalia. Um, so the Eslin Institute was a big part of the human potential movement in the 1960s, which spawned a bunch of weird shit. Um, Heinlein, as we know, was friends with L. Ron Hubbard, who would go on to form the Church of Scientology. Um, there was a guy named Werner Erhard who got really into both Scientology and the Human Potential movement out in California. Erhard would take literally Hubbard uh, accused Erhard of stealing Scientology's technology, um, but he would take bits of Scientology and Human Potential stuff and would lead his own kind of weird seminar thing. And I can see like. Pieces of this like general semantics that Heinlein and Watts were into um, and pieces obviously of like Scientology and and stuff like that in Erhard's um, seminar that he developed called Est during the 70s. Est was kind of a weird mind control thing. Thing. a lot of people kind of called it a cult um, and and I think that's really kind of the piece that he took from Scientology um, was this sort of like brainwashing aspect, and and brainwashing might be too strong of a word, um, but S would hold these like multi-day seminars, right? And people would pay to attend, and they would go, and they would lock them in this big room, and they would do these like intense kind of lectures that that would essentially like break people down, right? It was like a lot of like introspection and like kind of Radical like taking responsibility for things but also that idea of um, kind of distancing yourself from like um, control over our own responses and, and our own emotions. And and it was just like a lot of weird mishmash of this like new agey stuff. But um, they would also kind of like – it relied on the same principle as a lot of kind of um, – you know, brainwashing or enhanced interrogation techniques, you know, you'd be locked in this room, they would be like confronting you and, and you know, basically telling you, you know, you, you're a piece of shit or you're a bad person or or these sorts of things and having people kind of reflect on these like fraught emotional incidences in this like group full of like people and everyone and, um, you know, it would essentially kind of break people down through like these group dynamics And and I wouldn't – you know deprivation might be the wrong word but like if you tweak someone's like sleep schedule even like a couple of hours and like delay um you know when lunchtime is and things like that it like affects your blood sugar and your mood and it makes you um you know susceptible in these ways that you wouldn't like otherwise be and they would use these techniques and 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 people would go through the seminar and have like this breakthrough or whatever, Um, and they would get really into Est, and they would go to all these, like, Est seminars, and take these, like, supplemental Est classes, and um, do all that stuff. Um, it was kind of dramatized on the show, FX's show, The Americans, um, which is about Russian spies, and I guess, like, the spies get sucked into Est. Est isn't around anymore, um, but its successor, Landmark, is, um, For legal reasons, I'm not going to get into them at all here. Um, I did write about Landmark a couple years ago, and I will link that story in the show notes if anyone is interested. Um, Est and Landmark, though, they're definitely like the more benign things that have come out of Scientology, um, there is a much darker side to Scientology um, offshoots, and that is, of course, like the process church of the final judgment, um, which kind of, you know, similar to like Est, right, took the the kind of mind control, like brainwashing piece of Scientology. Um, but mixed it with, uh, you know, Satanism and occult practices. Um, The Netflix documentary Sons of Sam really discusses them really well, um, as well as McGowan's book Program to Kill. The landmark of Process Church, like today, it's like the Best Friends Animal Society. Um, That's the current incarnation of the Process Church. Um, Some folks have suggested that the Fosterite Church of the New Revelation from Stranger in a Strange Land is like a representation of the process church, but I don't know about that. It's certainly weird though, like thinking of Heinlein's work in the context of the connection to Crowley – Um, who objectively was kind of a despicable human being, like even if like half the stories about him are like even remotely true, um, he's a gross dude. And that definitely gives me pause, like thinking about Robert Heinlein's work, especially like this work that I like consumed as a very young person, like during my like formative kind of periods, Um, you know, but... I think it's hard to say to what extent those kind of connections like actually influenced Heinlein, you know, like it's weird though. It's, it's definitely weird. On that note, I will sign off. Next time we'll be in Trinidad, Colorado, where I will do my worst ContraPoints impression as I talk about the sex change capital of the world. Bus to the safest place And take the next ship Into outer space You know That you lost it Take the next bus To the safest place And take the next ship Into outer space Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or tell a friend or whatever it is you do with podcasts. Um, you can connect with us on Twitter at, at @WesternFringe. W-S-T-R-N Fringe or drop us a line at westernfringe at protonmail.com This episode was brought to you by Odds and Inns Emporium a woman-owned toy and gift shop located at the Ivy Wild School in Colorado Springs, Colorado Visit oddsandendsemporium.com to see their wide selection of unique toys and gifts Until next time